Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked its way to a restful ledge, ah, hardly restful, on Mount Purgatory, where Virgil has explained why the sun doesn't seem to be in the right quadrant of the sky because they're on the other side of the globe and the sun is rotating in an ellipse and Jerusalem's at the top. Whoa. To know all that, you got to go back to the previous episode. If you're just dropping in here, let me say that there are hundreds of episodes behind us. Go back to season one. <laughs> Catch up through Inferno. Trust me, there's a lot going on to get to this place in Purgatorio. But Dante and Virgil and we, who are walking with them, are on a ledge, the first ledge of Mount Purgatory. We're at lines 76 through 96 of Canto 4. We're finishing up the disquisition about the sun's position and Dante's shock to find the sun in the wrong quadrant on the other side of the globe. You can find this, my English translation, on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. Go there, print it off, drop a comment, do all those things. Come on, do those things. And... (laughs) (laughs) We can continue the discussion there. For now, this podcast is about lines 76 through 96 of Canto 4 of Purgatorio. For sure, my master, I said, at no point have I seen it so clearly as I understand it right now, just at the very spot where my innate ability was most lacking. The middle circle of the turning heavens, which certain sciences call the equator, and which ever takes its stand between the sun and winter, according to the reason you said, is as far north from here as the Hebrews saw it from the more torrid regions. But if it pleases you, I'd like to know how far up we have to go for the mountain slopes up farther than my eyes can climb. And Virgil, to me... This mountain is such that the climb is much harder at the start. The more you go up, the less bad it gets. Thus, when the climb seems altogether so gentle that it's as easy as floating in a boat that lets the current take it downstream, then this trail will have come to its end. That's where you should wait to rest yourself. I've got no more to say, but I do know that this much is true. Curious passage. Dante, the pilgrim, reiterates Virgil's lesson. We want to talk about that. We want to talk about what this thing about the equator is that's going on in the passage. We want to watch how Dante changes the nature of the discussion. The pilgrim actually changes what's being discussed and suddenly is talking about the climb and not the sun. And then... Poor old Virgil. We got to say something about the drubbing he is continually subjected to. Let's get to it. So they've talked about the sun and where it is and why it's in the wrong quadrant and why it's coming from the left. And we discussed that in the last episode of the podcast. And I don't want to rehash it, but the pilgrim does for us. He says, for sure, my master, at no point have I seen it so clearly as I understand it right now, just at the very spot where my innate ability was most lacking. Virgil has said, well, you know, if you can apply yourself, you're going to understand this. And Dante comes back with a little bite. Hey. Uh, maybe I don't know everything, but I can understand this much. Just a little bit of a smack back at your teacher. And then Dante the Pilgrim goes on and does something that's very interesting. He says, the middle circle of the turning heavens, which certain sciences call 
the equator. Now, let's just stop right here, the equator. If this is a geocentric universe, then the equator, the ring around the center of the Earth, would be the central ring of this system. Everything else would ring out in spheres from this point. It's a little bit funky because it's a little bit translating three-dimensional space into two dimensions, and I just think that the poet Dante might not have thought this out entirely. It is true that the equator would be the center ring, but the planets don't run on rings. They run on spheres that are rotating around the Earth. A little bit of funkiness there with the equator. Still, nonetheless, it sits in the passage. And it says the, this middle circle ever takes its stand between the sun and winter. There apparently is some understanding of a change of seasons across this equatorial line. It's a little bit conflicted and a little bit jumbled in the text, but there seems to be a notion that perhaps there are different seasons in other parts of the globe or opposite seasons. Interesting, right? It's a strange little problem. It can mean that the equator is the thing that keeps summer moving. That is, you know, it's always winter or it's always summer based on equatorial positions. It can mean that it's a little hard to see it. It does seem to indicate that there's a divide by the equator, which would be a profound understanding of the global configuration. Dante the Pilgrim goes on to say, according to the reason you said, that equator is as far north from here as the Hebrews saw it from the more torrid regions. Remember, Jerusalem and Mount Zion are at the top of the globe. So I'm as far away from the equator here on Mount Purgatory as those Hebrews were when they were standing in Jerusalem. We're, we're both as far away from that central belt, which would be the central belt of the entire universe. Oh, but there's an irony going on here. Dante, the pilgrim, is better able to explain the universe <laughs> than Virgil. This explanation is easier than the one we had in the last episode of the podcast. Virgil had that long explanation about, well, if the sun were in Gemini, I mean, a complete supposition, if the sun, but it's not, it's in Aries. He didn't say that, but he meant it. And we went through that whole Zodiac thing. Remember this whole thing? And Virgil said, well, you know, if it was in Gemini, it'd be easier because then you would see the sun in the Zodiac. It was closer to the bears or the Big Dipper. Oh, Virgil's explanation is quite difficult and predicated on a series of ifs and a series of suppositions. When the pilgrim restates the argument, this is like a student saying the answer back to the teacher. The student says it back much simpler. The student basically says, OK, there's an equator. And 
<laughs> I and Jerusalem are on opposite sides of this equator. Okay, I get it now. And this explanation is so much easier. This always strikes me as a little bit of a smack at Virgil because the pilgrim is able to say it easier. Now, Virgil was a little nasty by saying, you know, well, if you can apply your mental faculties, you'll figure this out. And then the pilgrim indeed applies those mental abilities and indeed states it in a simpler way. There's got to be a small amount of running under this question. And then the pilgrim changes gears entirely. But if it pleases you, the passage goes on at line 85, I'd like to know how far up we have to go for the mountain slopes up farther than my eyes can climb. And Virgil comes back and says, this mountain is such that the climb is much harder at the start. The more you go up, the less bad it gets. This is what I find so fascinating. We've been having this entire discussion of mm, somewhat arithmetic, certainly geography, and certainly astronomy, parts of the quadrivium. We've been dancing around this medieval system of learning. The pilgrim then restates the argument, states it simpler, and then turns us completely away from quote-unquote science, science as Dante would understand it, to allegory. The pilgrim basically says, I can't see all the way up this thing. How far does it go up? And Virgil's answer then builds on that and builds the allegory out. There is probably an allegorical statement that the pilgrim cannot yet see the top of the mountain. The pilgrim is not able to see morally and intellectually the summit of purgatory. Just think about that symbolically because Virgil's going to push it. The pilgrim may ask a question that could be geographically answered. After all, Virgil could say, well, it's 1,400,000 steps to the top. Or you could say, well, it's 17 miles. Up. Virgil could say all kinds of geographical answers if he knew them. But instead, he shifts it to allegory and he says, it's harder at the bottom and easier at the top, which makes us think about it theologically and morally, that the climb is the most difficult when you start out. And Virgil says, when the climb, and this beautiful image, seems so gentle that it's as easy as floating in a boat that lets the current take it downstream. So when the upslope seems as easy as just sitting in a boat going downstream. Think about the paradox or the contrast or the juxtaposition going on there. Then this trail, Virgil says, will have come to its end. That's when you should wait to rest yourself. The pilgrim starts out to change the discussion as they rest on this cornice from one of difficult and hard to grasp astronomy to a much simpler question. How far do we got to go? I'm out of breath. I'm tired already. It's the first climb and I am worn out. How much more of this do I have to go? And then Virgil changes that again and changes it to something moral. Let's talk about that. Virgil's ability to change this discussion into an allegorical or moral statement about the climb gets easier the farther up it you go 
indicates that Virgil is still able to be a moral guide for the pilgrim. He may not know, as we have discovered, divine revelation, and he may know that Aristotle and Plato are condemned to hell as he is. Yet, at the same time, he is clearly some kind of moral teacher because here he's instructing the pilgrim morally, Theologically, the more you climb toward God, the easier it gets. The start of the climb is the hardest part. I don't have to draw this out to your life, do I? It, it, It doesn't even have to be theological. The start of the climb is the hardest moment of all. And then once you're doing it, it gets easier and you get better at it and better at it. And finally, when it feels like nothing, it feels like you're floating downstream, then you'll know you have reached the summit. A grand moral lesson. Does Virgil offer this moral lesson? Here's a big question for you. Because Virgil doesn't know the answer of how high the mountain is. There's a possibility Virgil is not given divine revelation. So he has no idea what this mountain affords or how it goes. Maybe he does seem to know some things that we'll see ahead. Does he not know how high it is or what sits up at the top of it? Maybe, but he seems to later on, we'll find out. Is Virgil here showing that he can instruct morally, but the specifics of the universe are beyond him or the specifics of the afterlife are beyond him? Maybe, maybe Virgil is diverting into what he knows, but even that proves problematic. I've got no more to say, but I do know that this much is true. This represents the limits of Virgil's knowledge. What does he know? Okay, he clearly knows something about the quality of perfection. He knows that as you begin to perfect and become more desirous of God, to use Dante's terms, the climb gets easier. He knows the quality of perfection, less effort, the higher you are. But he doesn't know the content because he's lacking divine revelation. That much is true. But also, again, we have poor Virgil humiliated. Virgil, in the end, can't answer the question, how high is this mountain? He gives the answer he can, which is about moral instruction. And then he's forced to mouth these words. I've got no more to say but I know that this much is true. It's part of this overall drubbing that Virgil comes in for in the opening cantos of Purgatorio. This is going to keep being a problem. Poor Virgil, running like a frantic idiot away from Cato, admitting that Aristotle and Plato knew a lot, but not enough to get them out of hell, finding that he's lost and doesn't know where to keep walking until we find somebody that can tell us what to do. Finally getting up here, cheerleading the pilgrim on, offering a scientific answer about the universe, but not finally being able to detail the full extent of Mount Purgatory. Over and over again, he has to abase himself in some way. I just finished watching the last season of Succession, and through all of the last episodes, I kept saying to my husband, Bruce, how much abasement can one soul take? Because 
all of the figures around the very rich family were just so groveling and abasing themselves in front of these children trying to get near the money. Oh, my God. I was like, how much can poor Hugo do or Jerry? I mean, how can they just lie on the floor like a worm in front of these rich, privileged brats and still try to catch the crumbs from the table? Well, it's like that here. Poor Virgil. He just keeps coming in for abasement, and he keeps coming up against what he doesn't know and keeps coming up against an undignified stance. And for the greatest poet, according to Dante, of the classical world to say, well, I got got no more to say, (laughs) that's quite a lie. A poet should always have more to say. And, well, poor Virgil, he doesn't. Let's go back and read the entire rest sequence on the first ledge of Mount Purgatory, all the way back to lines 52 through the end of this passage at line 96. The two of us sat down there to rest a bit. We were facing east, the direction from which we'd climb, because it does you good to see how far you've come. First, I set my eyes on the shore below, then raised them to the sun above. I was astounded to see that its light hit us from the left. The poet saw how he was utterly baffled by that chariot of light which now lay between us and the northern climbs. So, Virgil, to me, if Castor and Pollux kept company with that mirror that moves its light both north and south, you'd see the zodiac's rosy glow positioned even closer to the bears unless it was able to leave its old path. You'll have to want to think hard to know how this can be. Concentrate and imagine Zion stationed on the earth in relationship to this mountain so that they both have the same horizon, although in different hemispheres. Then you'll see that the road that fate and failed to drive you to fortune has to pass the one on one side, then the other on the other side of that horizon. If you're able to apply your intellect's facilities. For sure, my master, I said, at no point have I seen it so clearly as I understand it right now, just at the very spot where my innate ability was most lacking. The middle circle of the turning heavens, which certain sciences called equator, and whichever takes its stand between the sun and winter, according to the reasoning you said, is as far north from here as the Hebrews saw it from the more torrid regions. But if it pleases you, I'd like to know how far up we have to go, for the mountain slopes up farther than my eyes can climb. And Virgil to me, this mountain is such that the climb is much harder at the start. The more you go up, the less bad it gets. Thus, when the climb seems altogether so gentle that it's as easy as floating in a boat that lets the current take it downstream, then this trail will have come to its end. That's where you should wait to rest yourself. I've got no more to say, but I do know that this much is true. Thanks for being part of this walk with Dante and his guide, Virgil. (laughs) Poor Virgil. I just feel for him. He gets more and more heroic in Purgatorio because so much is at stake, and yet he is trying so hard, and yet he is damned. And so, so much at stake, trying so hard, and yet it's not going to come to anything. (sighs) Virgil is just an incredibly poignant character. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please rate it. Please do all those things that you can do to help it stay afloat in the vast landscape of podcasts where the sun is ever turning round and round us. I certainly very much appreciate that. And I appreciate your being on the walk with me. I'm Mark Scarborough. And 
We got to get up off this ledge. We've had enough rest, right? Let's do that in the next episode of Walking with Andre.